Children are dismissed. The rest of you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19. That's page 811 in the Pew Bibles. Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 19. Page 811 in your Pew Bibles. As we continue our journey through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we learn more and more how to honor God in our ways of worship. Whether it's our acts of generosity or our praying to God our Father and even in our times of fasting, they are to be intimate, quality times of fellowship with God. In every instance, the Lord warned us against playing the hypocrite by seeking praise from others for our open displays of righteousness. He said, for then we have received our reward and nothing further will be coming from the Father. In our text for today, Jesus directs the disciples, the multitudes who had gathered around them and us on how we are to handle our earthly treasures correctly, how we handle or use the gifts we have received from God has a lot to do with how we view those gifts. Do we, do we view them as tools that we should use to honor and glorify God by promoting his kingdom through the local church, missionaries, or even parachurch organizations? Do we see the money and all the things that God has given us as an opportunity to show the kindness and benevolence of Christ? Are we really ready and willing to provide sustenance to the needy that God has providentially placed along our paths, following the pattern from the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus laid out for us? Or do we view the things that we have as the necessary items we need in order to promote our own kingdom, our own personal goals, and our self-glorifying agendas? Some are unsure or confused as to whether God's kingdom is their top priority or not. But I think James Frick's uh, famous comment brings clarity. He said, don't tell me what your priorities are. Show me where you spend your money and I'll tell you what they are. If we view money as a way to promote our own little kingdom here on earth, it will be reflected in our financial statements. To keep us from going down the wrong path, Jesus warns us in our text for today that if we give our hearts over to money and wealth, it will replace God as our master and Lord. It will be revealed that money is truly the one we worship. The deceitful thing about riches is that it is able to bring us joy for a time. It can't sustain the level of joy that only a right relationship with the true God can bring. And that's the deceitfulness that we fall into 
That's the way that we are deceived by following these things that bring us temporary joy in this age. And this is the perfect time of year where parents can teach their children. Christmas was seven days ago. And yet, some of the toys that our children just had to have are sitting in a corner somewhere gaining dust, just like that. What a wonderful opportunity to teach them about the continuous joy that you still have from the gift of eternal life. The gift that you received by grace through faith through Jesus the Christ. Never miss an opportunity to show them how much more superior Christ is to everything. This is what Jesus is telling us, God's children, in our text for today. My three points uh, for this sermon are the deceived heart, the darkened body, and the despised master. The deceived heart, or the deceitful heart, the darkened body, and the despised master. Let me read our text, pray, and then we'll get into it. Once again, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24, page 811 in the Pew Bibles. This is the holy word of God. Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Father, we come before you today on this glorious day, the last Lord's Day of the year. Uh, I pray that as we go forth, as we go into this new year, that we would uh, recognize where we stand before you, that we would be honest and confess who is Lord of our life. We understand, Lord God, that you are the master of the universe, but if we do not take into account that there has to be this personal uh, a servanthood, this slavitude, if I can use that word, to you and your kingdom, then it really doesn't matter until the end. And it will be disclosed who our master really was. Please help us today, Lord. Please help me to speak clearly, Lord God, that your people may understand your truth from your word, from your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Point number one, the deceived heart. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19, when Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, the words he used to say not are actually two words. Un me. Un me. It's used to express an absolute denial. It would be like us saying, never, no, never. So literally, Jesus is saying, 
never, no, never lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. And the word for treasures speaks of a place or thing you would place your treasures in. In those days, the people would store their produce in storehouses. Now, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But when Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures, he's speaking of the hoarding of wealth for yourself. Hoarding is the problem. And I want you to think about the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. This man's land produced plentiful. So much so, he ran out of room to store his stuff. But instead of giving to the poor, starting with the closest, those closest to him, and working his way out, his solution was to tear down his barns and build larger ones so that he could store all of his grain and keep all of his goods for himself. The text says he started talking to himself and thinking within himself, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Jesus ends the story by telling those who are listening that God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Jesus is telling his people who may have been following the ways of the Jewish leaders, who were lovers of money, never, no, never store excessively for yourself earthly items, but on the contrary, be rich towards God, which means to be rich in good works. These are works that promote the kingdom and cares for the king's people. We are called to be good stewards of everything that God has freely granted to us. We are to take those things like intellect and strength to earn wages, then take those wages and use them to glorify God and his kingdom. That includes promoting the kingdom financially, being a blessing to our neighbor financially, and then wisely enjoying the fruits of your labor. Most of us have a, a, a savings uh, or retirement account. Uh, Jesus is not saying that's wrong. He's not telling people that they shouldn't have some savings stored away. For even scripture tells us a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Proverbs 13 and 22. So the problem isn't having something stored away. Once again, Jesus is speaking against the sin of hoarding. And he does this by giving us three examples of things that have a way of damaging or taking away those precious items that we have. And those um, items or examples include the moth, rust, and the thief. The moth, rust, and the thief. Now, think about the moth. Overnight, a little old moth can ruin that overpriced sweater that you just had to have. And most times, you'll never even see the moth. You'll just see the hole that she left. Then there's rust. I have a, a, a family member who used to own, and used to is the key uh, words, are the key words, used to own a 77 Chevy Nova. 
77 Chevy Nova. It was his prize. And he had great plans of restoring this car to its uh, 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 showroom uh, uh, condition, its original perfection. And he couldn't wait. He just had to have this car. But as time went by, he just never had time to get to it. There was always something else uh, uh, coming up before him. So in what seemed to be the blink of an eye, the car just turned into a big pile of rust, worthless. He ended up getting rid of it for nothing. Then there's the thief. The thief is on a whole nother level than the moth who's an insect and the rust which is caused by metal's reaction to oxygen and water. The thief is made in the image of God, so his violation of the seventh commandment violates the bond between God and man and man and man. That's why to be robbed or to have something uh, uh, stolen from us strikes to the heart and is something we rarely forget. But the main point of Jesus' teaching is to show us the futility and deceiving nature of earthly treasures. Many of the things we crave on earth have a way of deceiving our hearts in at, le in at least two ways. Number one, we forget they're only temporary. No matter how much you pay for it, it will not last forever. And number two, earthly treasures have a way of becoming idols. First John chapter five and verse 21 says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. When it comes to, to idols, we're like little children whose attention and affections are divided whenever they're playing with their favorite toy. And just like children, we get angry, we get anxious, and we get depressed whenever our idols are taken away. We're fooled into believing, if I just get this, fill in the blank, then I'll be happy. But here's the truth. If you're not happy right now in Christ, you'll never be happy. For some of you, that's depressing. For some of you, that, it's like, oh, wow. It doesn't get any better than this, but, but, but here's the truth. When, 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 Scripture speaks of being happy, we think of the Beatitudes, right? So we're not talking about giggly, always smiling, life is perfect happy. We're talking blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. That's the Beatitudes continually blessed happy. And if you don't have that right now, you'll never You'll never have it. If you're just looking for how much you, you, you have accumulated, if you're just looking for those things that you don't have and you want them so bad and you just will never be satisfied until you get that because you're looking across the aisle and other people have that, but I'm a good person, so how come I don't have that? You'll never be this happy, this scriptural, scripturally, scripturally happy where you can be persecuted for righteousness sake and still have a deep down joy that Jesus loves you and this you know because the Bible tells you so. That childlike happiness because you have Christ. 
And that's why we read the scriptures, right? Because life is happening from every side. It's coming at us quick, hitting us hard and heavy. Disappointments from people, disappointments from our own actions and decisions, disappointments from just tragedies that happen in this world. But if you are not in the word of God, meditating on it, memorizing it, quoting it, and, and, and calling someone up and saying, hey, let me share something with you that I have been reading from the word of God. It has blessed me. Maybe it can bless you. Now, what that does, it not only blesses them, but it blesses you twice. You're, you're reading and you're grasping the word and then you're taking someone else. When you call, you don't know what that person was thinking about or going through. But when you call someone and you says, hey, you say, hey, I, I, I was reading this and it blessed me. Can I share it with you? Now, what you have done is you have to pull them out of their thinking. You have taken them from whatever they were going through at that moment, and you focus them on God through his word. That's what we are called to do as believers. For the unbeliever, I understand. I understand perfectly why they're never happy. It's crystal clear. Their discontentment with life never ends. It's one adventure to the next, one job to the next, one, 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 one avenue of entertainment to the next, one car to the next, one house to the next. It never ends for them. They don't have deposited with them, within them what we have, the spirit of God, and it should make a difference. For those who have been crucified with Christ, life is full. We realize that it is no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us. And the life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. He gave himself for us. That should mean something. That's Galatians 2.20, by the way. If you are not satisfied in Christ, you will remain unsatisfied with money. If you are not satisfied with the creator of all things, how could you ever be satisfied with any created thing? In our text, Jesus is not only showing us the emptiness of this world, but he's also pointing us to a better place, a heavenly place. Because in verse 20 of Matthew 6, he changes the focus from what we should never know, never do, to what we must do if we want our hearts to be centered in heaven and on God. He said, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The question is sometimes asked, how do we lay up treasures in heaven? Well, from the several references within scripture, we store up treasures in heaven through our godly deeds that are done on earth. The Spirit of God tells us our works or good deeds follow us into heaven. Revelation 14, 13. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord 
from now on. Just hold on to that for a second. Blessed are the dead in the Lord who die from now on. From now on, you're blessed, not cursed. To drop to the ground, to have your body hit the ground and your soul go before the presence of God, there's nothing better. There is nothing better. Older folks who have been walking with the Lord for a while can lay on their hospital bed knowing they may never get out of it, but knowing Christ even better than that, and look at everybody gathered around them and say, don't pray for me. Don't pray. I'm, I'm going to see my Lord. Pray for yourselves. I know Christ, and he's calling me home. That's what it's about. The more we cling to this world and the blessings that God has given us, the more we want to stay here, which means the more we suffer, the more we're disappointed, the more we hurt. See, you, you young people, you don't know what it is just to get up in the morning and have a new pain. You're like, how in the world? Where did that come from? I'm just hurting. You, you, but give it time. It's going to catch up. This outer man is perishing. But I pray you stay in the word. I pray you keep reading. I pray you keep fellowshipping. I, keep, I pray you keep praying so that your inner man will be renewed day by day. So that as the body's declining, your spirit man is growing and getting stronger. And wisdom is filling you. And you're able to sit back. You're able to sit back and look at the world go crazy. And listen to your family go crazy. And you're like, if only they knew. It's always going to be crazy. There's going to be somebody crazy. There's going to be a life situation that's crazy. But God is steady. And we stay up under God. We stay up under him. We abide in the shadow of the almighty. We don't, we don't move from that shadow. We're up under him. Praise God that he never moves. He never changes. Blessed indeed, says the Lord, or says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. There's our motivation for service. There's our motivation to keep going when we want to stop. There's our motivation to serve, not just on Sunday mornings, but your husband, your wife, your parents, to serve continually. It doesn't go unnoticed. God is not unjust to forget your labor of loves and that you minister and do minister to the saints, Hebrews 6.10. It's not done for nothing. If nobody says thank you, if nobody pats you on the back, your good deeds follow you into heaven. God is so good. When Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, he's letting us know that if our treasure is earthly, our hearts will be earthly. But if our treasures are in heaven waiting for us, our hearts will be heaven-centered, our minds will be kingdom-focused, and our tongues will speak words that point people to our heavenly king. This is why uh, uh, Jim Elliot, the missionary, once said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, 
to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I also believe John Calvin got it right when he said, wherever men imagine their greatest happiness to be, there they are surrounded and confined. And that's dangerous. Because wherever you imagine your greatest happiness to be, you are surrounded by that, but yet you are confined to that. So God better be your greatest happiness because everything else is a trap. To be surrounded and confined by things that perish with the using is a miserable deception originating from darkness. This is why it is biblically illogical for those in Christ to choose to chase hard after the temporary and unfulfilling riches of this world. Our most fulfilling pursuit is to serve Christ faithfully, give our lives sacrificially, and love the Lord for what he has already given. It's called contentment. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. That would be page 993 in your pew Bibles. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning at verse 6, Paul is basically expounding on what Jesus said in our text from Matthew 6. If we're going to put off chasing the things of the world, it takes putting on a heart of godliness and contentment. In verses 6 to 10, the Apostle Paul wrote, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Not good gain. Not adequate gain, but great gain. So two questions we ought to consider. Number one, are we walking in godliness and number two, are we content in Christ? Is Christ enough? Although we came into this world with nothing, most of us have realized that the more we have received, the more we have wanted. And hopefully by now, all of us have come into agreement with Solomon. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. He was the richest man of his day. And he purchased and pursued everything his heart desired. Yet he exclaimed emphatically that everything in life apart from God is empty. Vanity. The word that uh, Solomon uses throughout the book of Ecclesiastes for vanity literally means vapor or breath. It implies that all earthly goods only have fleeting value and then evaporates like a puff of air. That's the same truth that Paul is warning us of 
in 1 Timothy 6. He's instructing us on what to do in order to keep us from spending our lives accumulating a bunch of stuff that only has fleeting value and then evaporates like a puff of air when compared to what we have in heaven. Praise God for what we have in heaven. If we didn't have that, what would we have? Everything we have just goes away. And the desires within wants more. Not recognizing that that would never bring any real satisfaction. It's just this, this, this chase on the hamster wheel. Most of us are tired of working. But we, we, we rationalize. We work so we should have a good time. So we have a good time, we get in debt, and we have to work even harder. It's a vicious cycle. It just keeps going. I deserve it. So we spend, oh man, we gotta work. It will kill you. Till you get to this point, and you recognize, this doesn't make any sense. Something has to change. And then we read the word of God. And he's telling us what we've experienced. It's emptiness. There has to be, there has to be more value to life than this. And we look to God. We look to God. We pray, Lord, how can I serve you? How can my life become meaningful in your eyes? Not to man's, but in your eyes. And we take a look at the people that God has providentially placed in our lives. How can I bless them to lead them to Christ that they would get off of the hamster wheel and serve Christ alongside to be with me? You know what I mean? To go forward and say, Lord, speak through me. Help me, Lord God. I don't know what to say. And we start with, good morning. Good evening. How you doing? How was your weekend? Great. And listen to everything they did over the weekend. Then it's your turn. Saturday, we did whatever. Sunday, I heard this great message by this great guy, this handsome guy. And it really helped me to see that my perspectives aren't right. That I need to focus on the one who created me and who has placed in me this eternal thing, this, this eternal hole that only he can fill. Great. Now, here's, here's what's going to happen. Either they're going to get real quiet or they're going to find the exit. But we're called to throw that seed out there. And every once in a while, it's going to be good ground. It's going to be good ground. And they will go forth to produce 100 60 or 30 fold from a five minute conversation because you deposited something into them just by sharing what you did what you heard praise God verse 10 1 Timothy chapter 6 for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. 
in line with Jesus' teaching, Paul is saying those who tried, they tried to serve God and money proved you can't do both. They showed that God was never their master. Money was. So they walked away from the Christian faith and the local church, not salvation. They never knew Christ. They went to church for whatever reason. Their mother made them go. Their spouse made them go. They wanted to set a good example for their children. They loved the community. They hung out. They ate pizza. They heard a good, inspiring word. But they never loved Christ. Whenever those Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door and they start talking all friendly, or the Mormons, or whoever, about how they used to be Baptists, or they used to be Methodists, ask them, did you know Christ? Did you ever love Christ? I have not heard that yet. When you were eight and you were going knocking door to door and watching your parents, and you were so proud of them, and they said, this is what we're called to do, did they ever teach you to love Christ? Do it for him, not to earn salvation. Do it because you have salvation. And you are living sacrificially for the one who died for you. They never loved Christ. That means they were saved. And they wouldn't be a Jehovah's Witness if you're saved. I'm not saying some people don't happen to go there by mistake and then find out that's wrong. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about having your whole life devoted to that system that is wrong. But for those who have this love for money, making God into something that you spend is worse than heresy. Making your God something that is transient, it comes and it goes, it's foolish. And those who made money their God, it caused them to suffer severely. And those who did that and were in the church recognized it was just a fling and they move on. Let's move down to verse 17 of 1 Timothy 6. It says, as for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's what you want. You want to take hold of that which is truly life, not the thing that is fleeting. Paul says the way to grab a hold of what is truly life is to store up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation for the future. He's speaking of our heavenly future, which is what Jesus back in Matthew 6 said. Heavenly treasure is stored up by our doing good. Paul then defines it as being rich in good works, including generosity, which those who are rich sometimes need to be reminded of. 
He is no fool. Remember Jim Elliot. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And some people, I don't know if you've heard it, but I've heard it. Some people say, if I were rich, then I'd give. But if you're not giving or being a blessing from whatever resources they have now, what proof do they have that they would give them? More money may only reveal any covetousness or darkness they may have hidden within them. I believe this is what Jesus is getting at back in Matthew chapter 6, 22. So if you can go back to Matthew 6 for a minute. Matthew 6, verse 22, uh, page 811 again, once again. Uh, let's look at that because this takes us to my second point. The darkened body. The darkened body. And here, Jesus, oh, Jesus speaks in language that the Jews would recognize. Beginning in verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? They easily understood that because in Jewish uh, literature, their writers tell of three sorts of eyes. A good eye, a middling eye, and an evil eye particularly when it came uh, to the offerings of the first fruits. According to the house of Shammai, a good eye gave the best part, the middling eye an acceptable part, and an evil eye the worst part. A, a good eye uh, meant that one was, uh, uh, spoke of one who was generous, but an evil eye spoke of one that was covetous. Jesus said the eye is the lamp of the body. Body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Light here in context refers to the godly moral conscience of a person. If, somebody, if someone's whole body is full of light, meaning they have a moral conscience that pleases God, then all of their actions will be influenced by that light. Their whole life will be illuminated, guided, and governed by. According to the Lord, whether you're giving alms, going back to the beginning of the chapter, chapter 6 of Matthew, whether you're giving alms, praying, fasting, trading, dedicating something to the temple, whatever it is, let it be done with a good eye. However, if your regular disposition was to give in a stubborn or grudging manner, that was a sign of covetousness and seen as having an evil eye. That's what Jesus refers to as someone having their whole body being full of darkness. With that said, when it comes to removing that darkness eternally, it only comes from the Lord because he is the true and pure light. Apart from him, all men are in darkness. If you do not know the Lord as your savior, then you have not received that eternal light. You may feel good once, once in a while. You may hear a word and, and, and that really pumped you up for an hour. But if you don't have the eternal light of Christ, you are still in darkness. But the Bible says, come. Come to him, all who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest. Come to him. 
And I'm asking you this morning to come to him that you may receive the light of Christ. You may have heard that Christ is the light of the world, but it's not about what you heard. It's about the faith that comes from what you heard. The word of God tells us that faith comes from, from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. All men, all men everywhere are born in darkness and need the eternal light. And what Christ did is he entered into this world of darkness to deliver men from this darkness. So he's the only one who can save you. He is the only one who is that eternal light. He wasn't light for a little while. He was light from the beginning. True light coming from true light. The God of the universe who said, let there be light. He was the greater light. He is the greater light. He is able to deliver you from your dark ways, your dark mind, from those thoughts that corrupt and corrode, depress, make you anxious. He's able to just take you out of that. And we abide in him because this flesh is wicked. This flesh will, will, will try to pull you back. And it's a vicious fight until the day you see him face to face and that old nature is eradicated totally. But in the meantime, you have to have the light of Christ residing and working in you to keep you specifically to keep you from dying an eternal death. Where you'll be cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth from the torment, the physical torment in the new body that is prepared for hell and the inner torment from remembering, your memory's not going anywhere, from remembering the words of life. Reflecting on those you knew who were in the light. And you just went off and ignored the truth of God. If that was the end of the story, we'd all be damned. But it's not. God provided Jesus as that sacrifice. And the death of his son meant life. For all who believe, Jesus gave his life as a ransom so that all who believe will be saved. It's a promise. It's a free gift. But it came at the cost of his life. So that the promise we now have from God is believe in the Son and you will escape the outer darkness and the torment. The question of the year is will you believe? Will you believe? Believing in Jesus turns our allegiance from the world and money and bows our hearts down at his feet. Jesus becomes our sole Lord and master and this is crucial because in verse 24 of Matthew 6 Jesus said no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And this is the subject of my third and final point. The despised 
master. Perhaps somebody may be able to serve two masters in some half-hearted capacity. But Jesus is declaring that no one can devote themselves to being fully committed to both of them. And God demands our whole heart. He will not share it with another. When two masters stand opposed to each other, no one can serve both. Only one of them is the master. The other one becomes a tool. You do not want to try to use God as a tool. It won't end well for you. If you hold tightly to money, you will serve money above all. But be warned, money is a cruel master. Many have spent a lifetime serving money, and although it costs them dearly, they still crave more. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. The person who has given themselves over to money will reveal by their actions that they really despise God. His word becomes something they trample on. However, the one who holds tightly to God loves God, loves his word, and shows it by their actions. For them, money is seen as a tool that they have learned to master. In another uh, discourse, Jesus repeated his declaration <clears throat> that no servant can serve two masters, but he ends it differently. So I want us to go to Luke 16 and 13, and we will end up the sermon there. Luke 16, 13, page 875 in the Pew Bibles. Jesus said, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now look at verse 13 again. No servant can serve. The word servant and serve speaks of being a slave of. And the word can speaks of ability. Jesus is saying no slave has the ability to be a slave of two masters. He will hate the one who acts like his master, but is not. It's too taxing on his mind, body, and soul. He or she will be devoted, meaning hold fast. He will hold fast to the real master, but they will despise the other. The Christian who holds money as his or her master and knows it, knows it would never say, I despise God. But when we look at the word Jesus uses here for despise, it means to, 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 to disesteem, to think little of. Now, they can confess, I really do think little of God when compared to how much I esteem money. They realize that they think way more about money than they think about God. 
while that is wrong, at least now they can pray correctly. Something like, Lord, forgive me, a sinner. I held money as my master. I pray you would turn my wicked heart from this sin, this gross sin. In Jesus' name I pray. Right? Now a relationship of love, faithfulness, and solitary service to God can begin if they really meant those words that they prayed. Now there is nothing in between them and their God. There is not this worry about money and thinking about money and how you need to make more money. There is this relationship that says, I'm going to pray to God. I'm going to love God. I'm going to serve God. I'm going to read his word. And I'm going to just go forward trusting him. I'm going to pray for wisdom that God would make me better at handling what he has given me and stop wasting it and then praying, how come I don't have asking for more money when I need wisdom to handle what I already have? Why would God give you more of what you're already unfaithful with? Why would he help you to strangle yourself, waste your life on that job you hate, Instead of saying, Lord, give me wisdom so that I don't have to be surrounded and confined to this thing that I think is going to bring me joy. Not the job, but the money you get from the job. 30, 40 years gone. Because you thought this was life. True life. But it's death. You learn these things as you get older. But I pray you would catch them while you're young. Spend time in the book of Ecclesiastes and you get to the end. And he says, remember your creator in, in your youth. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. The question I am now compelled to ask all y'all is, are you now inspired to think differently about the money the gifts, the all-around blessings that God has entrusted to you, knowing, <clears throat> knowing that how you use those blessings will determine what's stored up and waiting for you as tre <clears throat> treasure in heaven. I hope so. Because that's the place of peace. Once you get there, and God has given you wisdom, to say money is just a tool. It cannot be my master. It is a cruel taskmaster. Once you get to that place, things change. Your pursuits change. And you cry out to God, forgive me for replacing you with a false God. Help me, Lord, to go forward, to grab a hold of what is true life, those things that are eternal, relationships that you have given me where I have to learn how to love and forgive. Why? Because that's most important. Especially the eternal relationships that God has given us. They should never be neglected. When we read <coughs> Hebrews 10, 25 is good. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves as is the manner of some, especially as the day, the day, capital D, day, draws nigh. That's good, but verse 24 tells you why. To stir up love. Why would he have to tell the church to stir up love 
because sometimes we just don't. It's not a mushy feeling, love. It's an act, acts type of love, doing works type of love. Stir that up. Many have this thing where I need to be loved on. While that is true, somebody next to you needs to be loved on also. And Hebrews 10.24 says, stir it up. Stir up love when you come in the presence of some of your brothers and sisters. We're talking eternal relationships here. Once everything is done, that's what we have left. I praise God for that. That's the place that the psalmist was speaking of when he referred to the Lord as his refuge and fortress. It was a safe place that the psalmist was familiar with because he knew what it was like to dwell in the shelter of the Most High. Money can't do that for you. It can't help you to abide in that shadow of the Almighty. That type of security only comes when we serve the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Master over everything. Money can never do what it was never intended to do. Give us that eternal joy, peace, and satisfaction that every person on the planet craves. Only the Lord, our rock and redeemer, can do that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, please change our thinking. Please help us, Lord, to see you, worship you, to know that you are our rock and our redeemer. Please help us, Lord. Increase our faith, Lord God. We, we trust in so many things, Lord God, that are not you. We know you will never leave us nor forsake you. But I pray that we would act on that. Knowing that we are not living this life apart from you, Lord God. But even your spirit, your son prayed that he will send the paraclete to, to come alongside of us and to be in us. Please help us, Lord God. Please help us to know this to our core so that the decisions we make will be based off of that by faith. Let us trust you, not, not just with our, our, our words, Lord God, but our actions. This life is fleeting. It's like the grass that comes up in the morning and is cut in the evening. So let us redeem the time, knowing these days are evil. Let us look to the heavens from whence comes our help. All of our help comes from the Lord. Bless you, Lord. Please use your word to change hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.